Hello and welcome to the latest Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast. I'm Jonathan Davis, the editor of the Investment Trust Handbook, and your host for this weekly review of all the latest news and developments affecting the investment trust sector. My thanks to JP Morgan Asset Management for agreeing to sponsor the podcast, which as a result will now remain free for the foreseeable future. Moneymakers is an independent research and publishing venture with a mission to explain and inform. But I must remind you that for regulatory reasons, nothing you hear from any speaker today should be regarded as constituting individual investment advice. It's been another interesting week in the markets and the investment trust sector. When is there not, I should perhaps say? And I will be talking later to Ewan Lovett-Turner, Head of Investment Trust Research at what is now Deutsche Numis, following the completion of the takeover of Numis, the former listed independent broking firm, by the larger investment bank. This week also witnessed the annual Investment Week and AIC-sponsored Investment Company Awards, an opportunity for the industry to hold a celebratory dinner, honour some of the best recent performers in the universe, Mostly that's best in relative terms, of course, given what's been going on. And talk about what is going on. The chief topic of conversation, I think it's fair to say, and certainly my experience during the evening, being the campaign by uh, Saba Capital and other activist investors to challenge the boards of trusted wide discounts to take more remedial action. Saba has built up stakes in more than 15 equity investment trusts and is looking to raise more money to back its campaign. I've written some thoughts on that for the Moneymakers Circle this week, where you'll also find our usual summary of the week's investment trust news and the biggest price, NAV and discount moves week and year to date, together with our latest in-depth profile, which this week looks at Nippon Active Value, ticker NAVF, the Japanese equity trust, which is in the process of consolidating the sector by taking over two other Japanese trusts, Atlantis Japan and Aberdeen Japan. We have now completed more than 120 of these profiles, which provide an in-depth factual summary of each trust's history, approach and performance, and are intended to produce a useful starting point for anyone who's researching trusts, looking to buy or perhaps to sell, but who doesn't want to rely solely on company-sponsored or sales-led broking research. In keeping with our educational and research perspective, I might mention here that we are planning to add some more performance and technical data on a regular basis. For example, looking at the performance of those trusts classified as dividend heroes or those that adopt an enhanced income approach. We may also be adding more technical indicators which pick out trusts whose share prices are giving out positive or negative technical signals. Fortunately, there have been quite a few of those recently, positive ones, given the way that investment trusts have been showing signs of life in the last few weeks after the persistent derating of the last 20 months. It seems possible, well, maybe even likely, that we have reached some sort of turning point in that cycle. And if so, after urging caution for most of the past two years, my view would be that now is a good time to have more tools to look at where the best opportunities now lie. It's certainly been another good week for the investment trust sector, with the investment trust index up 2.5% on the week, and gainers outnumbering losers by more than 6 to 1. Renewable energy trusts, commercial property, and finally, you might say, some UK smaller company equity trusts are headed the list of risers, with some 40 trusts gaining 6% or more in share price terms on the week. Among larger trusts on the list, notable decliners, though, were Bailey Gifford Japan and BH Macro, which, after a storming 2022 has so far had a year to forget. A lot of this strong performance can be attributed to the strength of markets generally this week, boosted by the latest positive inflation readings in both the US and the UK, down to 3.2% and 4.9% respectively. 
Nasdaq was up 2.4% of the week, and the S&P 500 not far behind, up 2.2%, despite a sell-off on Friday. The FTSE indices also put in a good performance with gains of 4% for the 250 mid-cap index and 2.5% for the all-share. Gilts were also in good form with every issue rising in price as yields declined, led by some of the longer-dated issues. All this reflecting renewed confidence that further increases in interest rates are now less likely, and we may even be talking about potential cuts in interest rates next year. A small handful of gilts now for the first time in a while trade on yields below 4%. It was a similar story in the index-linked market. On the other side of the Atlantic, yields on longer-dated treasuries have edged back down from a peak of over 5% not so long ago to around the 4.5% level, although the yield curve remains inverted. Oil was down on the week, copper up a little, and gold still hovering just below the $2,000 an ounce mark. Turning to the news, there was uh, news this week of another proposed merger, this one involving two UK-focused trusts managed by JP Morgan. JP Morgan Smaller Companies, ticker JMI, and JP Morgan Midcap, ticker JMF. Uh, the boards of these two trusts have proposed a merger with shareholders in the mid-cap trust being offered an exit at a 2% discount to NAV, up to a maximum take-up of 15% of the share capital. No exit opportunity for the smaller companies' trust, however. The merged vehicle will be renamed the JP Morgan UK Small Cap Growth and Income Trust and have a new ticker, J-U-G-I. The deal is expected to complete in March 2024. The merged vehicle will adopt an enhanced income policy, meaning that it will pay an annual dividend equivalent to 4% of the opening NAV in each period. This is an approach favoured by a number of other JP Morgan managed trusts and seems to have worked well in attracting demand and limiting discount volatility. So no doubt the boards are hoping that this will do the same for their two trusts, both of which have been trading at discounts wider than 10%. Uh, The management fee on the combined vehicle is also being reduced. The market seemed to like this, even though it was a positive week. The JP Morgan Smaller Companies Trust was up 5% on the week, and the Midcap Trust up 9%. There was further news too this week from the Board of European Opportunities Trust, which held its keenly awaited continuation vote, at which a substantial minority of shares were voted against both continuation and the re-election of the board. The votes against came mainly from Saba Capital, which has built up a stake of more than 10% in the trust, and has been campaigning publicly for a greater return of capital than the board has proposed in order to reduce the discount at which the shares have been trading, and another US fund with a large shareholding. This trust, which is managed by Alex Darwell, will now make a tender offer for up to 25% of the shares at NAV minus 2% next month, and will be continuing its buyback program in an attempt to keep the discount in single figures. There will be another continuation vote, as we already knew, and another tender offer in three years' time if the trust's performance, which has been poor over the last five years, though much stronger over longer time periods, does not improve. This is a large trust, currently uh, just over $800 in market cap terms. And the significance of this annual general meeting is that European Opportunities Trust is the first of more than a dozen equity investment trusts in which Saba Capital has built up a significant shareholding to come to a general meeting vote. Some other notable trusts on the Saba list include BlackRock Smaller Companies, Henderson Opportunities, JP Morgan European Discovery, and three Bailey Gifford trusts. Most of these have a bias towards a growth style of investing, interestingly. And we need to watch out for more action on this front as the AGMs or other votes on these trusts come round. 
Elsewhere, another notable development this week was the potential involvement of Parliament in the controversial issue of regulatory disclosure of the costs of investment trusts. Not a topic that you would think would have much salience in political terms at the moment, but one that is of considerable importance to the investment trust universe. The issue here, discussed often on the podcast in the last few weeks, centres on the way in which regulatory disclosure of fund costs, which, let's be clear, in general terms must be regarded as a good thing, nevertheless penalises investment trusts by placing different and potentially off-putting requirements on them when compared to other types of fund, where they are competing for investor attention. Baroness Altman, perhaps better known as Ros Altman, the pension campaigner, raised the issue in the House of Lords this week and is introducing a private member's bill that may prod the government into legislating to exclude investment trusts from some of the current regulatory requirements that produce these misleading cost figures that wealth managers and others are forced to use when reporting to clients. They tend to make the cost of a trust appear higher than they would do if other measures were adopted. Although the government has promised to review the situation as part of a broader review of post-Brexit European regulation, and the FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, is also involved, bumbling along at its usual snail-like pace, it is a complicated issue, not quite as clear-cut as some of the campaigners have said, and we'll have to wait and see if this makes any progress. It certainly won't happen overnight, I think. Also in the news this week, Picton Property, ticker PCTN, which last week announced that it was in discussions with another commercial property trust, UK Commercial Property, ticker UKCM, about a merger between the two, announced its interim results, showing a 1.4% decline in its NAV. Picton has until the 6th of December to make a firm offer for UKCM. Its shares are currently trading at a discount of a little over 30% to the June NAV and yield around 5.5%. This compares to a 30% discount, 5.6% yield for UKCM, and a 29% discount, 6.8% yield for the wider diversified commercial property peer group. Last week, in what I would like to think was a rare example of inattention, I foolishly said in early editions of the podcast that Picton's merger partner was actually Balanced Commercial Property Trust, ticker BCPT, not UK Commercial Property Trust. What was I thinking? Who knows? Anyway, my apologies to both companies for that slip and the recording has been amended accordingly. There were annual results this week from Bailey Gifford European Growth, which reported an 8.3% NAV total return for the year to 30th of September. That was positive, but unfortunately well behind the 20.5% NAV total return of its benchmark index. And there were interims also from Syncona, ticker SYNC, Hansard Trust, HAN, the ticker there, Value and Index Property Income, ticker VIP, Warehouse REIT WHR and Capital Gearing Trust, ticker CGT, together with updates from a number of alternative asset trusts, including the two largest solar funds, Bluefield Solar Income, ticker BSIF, and Foresight Solar, ticker FSFL, the latter announcing it is selling a 50% stake in a Spanish solar project to raise cash. You can find links to all these announcements, as normal, on the Moneymakers website if you are a subscriber. In its interim statement, Capital Gearing Trust confirmed that it will have limited firepower to deploy on share buybacks under its long-standing zero discount policy for a few weeks because of an administrative lapse that has so far prevented it from attaining court approval to convert its share premium account into reserves that can then be used for share buybacks. Its co-chief investment officer, Chris Clothier, who was on the podcast not so long ago, went on social media to have what he described as a bit of a rant about the failure of trust boards to react more quickly to the challenge of de-rating. 
Well, if they haven't got the message already, they surely will have done so now, as Saba and others, whatever you may think of their methods, raise the stakes and go public with their efforts to force some change, unless performance improves at a number of equity investment trusts. They aren't campaigning against alternative asset trusts, and that's really for technical reasons, because what they do is they hedge their market exposure when they build a stake in an investment trust. And that's only really possible to do if you are targeting an equity investment trust. Well, more on this over the next few weeks. You can be sure about that. And we'll look forward to uh, keeping you up to date with all those latest developments. So it seemed like a good week to catch up with uh, Ewan Lovett-Turner, head of research at Numis Securities, now Deutsche Numis Securities, following the takeover earlier this year. And it's a good week because we've had some strong performance from the investment trust sector over the last couple of weeks. And that's mainly, I guess, down to interest rate expectations and interest rate movements, Ewan. But uh, what's it look like from your end? Yeah, it's a rare piece of strong performance and a bit of positivity, but certainly a big impact of the announcement of inflation falling and a little bit more than expectation. And that's impacted people's views on when interest rates might uh, start falling again and that that might be on the cards rather than looking at this perpetual higher or high interest rate environment. So money markets suddenly pricing in potential falls in, in interest rates next year. They're probably they're the best indicator we've got, but they're probably notoriously poor at actually predicting the actual outcome as any forecast. But markets have reacted, and uh, in the last week or so, the FTSE 250 and the the numerous smaller companies index are up um, nearly five percent, while the all share sort of a couple of percent. So that smaller, growthier end of the market certainly benefiting. And the investment companies universe up around 4% in price terms. And the real beneficiaries of that have been smaller cap funds, uh, the likes of BlackRock smaller companies up around 9%, Henderson Smallers and JP Morgan Midcap up around 7%, and growth orientated funds like Scottish Mortgage, Edinburgh Worldwide or Bailey Gifford US growth up 4 or 5%. In addition, those interest rate sensitive companies, the likes of property funds, up a good four or so percent in just the last week or so. So this is a welcome change from what's been a rather depressing and relentless derating of many investment trusts, the sector as a whole, and a lot of individual trusts, particularly alternatives over the last, well, it's now getting on for two years almost. What we've been saying, of course, for a while is the problem's really been no buyers and uh, quite a few sellers. Have you actually seen much evidence of buyers coming back into the market in force? Yeah, I think we have seen a bit of action in those particular sectors where people have been wary and waiting, property, renewables, uh, infrastructure. You can see several names are now up 10, 15% over the last month or so. And that you have seen, particularly after some of these big macros events, a, a bit of trading and, and that being um, based on real demand. But we're still seeing generally this year has been a bit depressing in terms of volumes from the likes of retail investors who are strapped for cash and spending it in other areas and, and wealth managers, whilst many of yeah, that more institutional side, the wealth manager, the, the multi-asset manager, have been looking at short-term government bonds really and thinking, why do I need to own anything else? And I think the potential that you might get significant gains from other asset classes and when they do move, they can move quite substantially. So we are getting a bit of a pickup in in volumes on the back of some of this latest news, certainly. And I think that's the key is people move from being wary and cautious and, and, and suddenly have that confidence to dive back in. 
There's nothing like a bit of prices going up for a change to encourage sentiment. You're absolutely right. But in terms of the outlook from here, um, do you think this rally might uh, run to the end of the year, for example? Or are you still, as a house, you're still relatively cautious about the economic outlook and the sector outlook? Well, no particular house view. I'll wait until I'm more fully integrated with the Deutsche Bank uh, machine to get the macro analysts out there. But my opinion for what it's worth is you, you probably get a period of continued volatility and it, it becomes a bit more uh, asset class by asset class, stock by stock. I think there's a potential in this environment where you've seen underlying valuations get to levels that aren't really supported by fundamentals that you get the opportunity. I think the UK small caps has been a really interesting space that, that's rallied quite strongly. And a lot of the negativity around that has been over the last few years, there's been the perpetual news that the UK has been the worst performing economy in the post-pandemic era and nothing like a revision of the ONS stats. And suddenly that fact, as it has been, is is no longer the case. And it's been a lot better than we were led to believe. And when the facts change, you change your view. I think that still hasn't quite permeated in some of those sectors. So yeah, areas that are unloved and, and forgotten have the potential to do well. And, and we've seen a bit of recovery in the likes of renewables and infrastructure, but still an area where you've got high quality cash flows that do have value and in many cases have interest rate and inflation linkage, which means they've potentially been beneficiaries in this environment, which really hasn't been recognised in share prices. Well, let's move on then and talk about another factor which a lot of people have been talking about in recent weeks, certainly as a possible factor which has contributed to the derating of investment trusts, and that is this issue of cost disclosure. This week, we have seen some progress on that in the sense that Baroness Altman, or Ros Altman, a well-known pension specialist who is now in the House of Lords, has introduced a private member's bill seeking changes in the way that these regulations apply to the investment company sector. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think that's actually going to lead to anything? Or is it just a way of airing a grievance that uh, may or may not have any results? I think this is a tremendously important issue for the sector. I think the cost disclosures have been a huge headwind to demand for investment companies over the last three and a half, four years. It's been a bit of a case of the boiling frog. There hasn't been a particular moment where everyone's had to shut them off. But we've certainly seen investors rationing their exposure to investment companies because they have to report through the cost disclosures to their underlying investors. And that's cost ratios uh, and calculations that are more onerous than they are for open-ended funds, include lots of things that are essentially sort of investment type decisions, like transaction costs and gearing, rather than just what it takes for the people to sit there and run the fund. And the exposure to asset classes like the alternative sectors means that it's a lot more intense than a traditional equity investment company. And we push uh, boards to make sure that they can lower fees and get a good deal for investors as much as possible. But we think some of the reporting of this has been misleading and, and unhelpful. Particularly, this has stopped the likes of your multi-asset managers and wealth managers from holding as meaningful portions of their portfolio in investment companies as they would like. And there's big disparities. For instance, a listed private equity fund in London, London listed, if that's owned by a multi-asset fund manager or a wealth manager, then they need to use the cost ratio in their costs that they report to their investors, including yeah, any leverage costs and performance fees. Whilst if you invested in a European listed private equity company, the equivalent cost would be zero. You know, certainly the cost isn't zero, but the cost you have to report. And the similar 
fact for property companies as well, different listings of property company within London, one can appear free to investors and one can appear quite expensive. And ultimately, that's stopping a lot of people holding it widely and has contributed to the widening discounts. What's been put forward, I think, is quite interesting and potentially removes it from the reporting regime that was designed to capture hedge funds and the like that weren't fully reporting their costs to investors. And this could quite meaningfully change the demand for investment companies and would be a significant positive for the sector, certainly. It seems slightly unusual to just potentially ignore the costs in your cost reporting, but the argument being that this is all reflected in a share price and particularly if things are, are trading on a discount, then a cost ratio that is based on a, an asset value rather than the market cap as your basis figure is not really appropriate. If you're buying Tesco, you would assess the cost base, but you wouldn't expect to have to aggregate Tesco's costs in your cost ratio as a wealth manager. It looks like it needs legislative change, so never hold your breath on that, but there seems to be some meaningful progress. Well, that's the issue, isn't it? I mean, it's all very well, but this is a private member's bill. It's not guaranteed that the government will necessarily support it. It might appear in government that this is a fairly trivial local issue. It shouldn't be worrying about too much. But uh, this issue has been around for a long time. So it's a bit disappointing, perhaps, that we haven't seen more progress until now. Yeah, it is tricky to know what will happen. But there has been some voices of, of MPs as well. And that's ultimately what will need backing in future, if it can be approved by uh, the Lords and put into the Commons. The questions in the Lords earlier this week seem to imply that. So being considered at the highest level and this sort of solution appears something that is clean and easy to somewhat exclude them from this regulation rather than getting into some of the thornier details of exactly which line items you might include or not include is a sort of trickier one to comprehend really for both regulators and and certainly MPs. There is an impression that some people have, which is that the regulators of Financial Conduct Authority and to a lesser extent the government, to the extent it takes an interest in these things, that uh, there is a sort of general bias against investment trusts on the one hand, the regulators traditionally have taken the view, well, the investment trusts are listed companies, they've got lots of protections in there, and therefore their shareholders are well looked after. Do you think that investment trusts don't get the treatment they deserve as an important source of capital for UK companies? Yeah, I certainly would agree with that. We've written to both the Treasury and the FCA, and, and part of that was highlighting the, the significance to the UK economy and, and figures we dug out at that time showed that around 16% of the UK's installed renewable capacity was owned by London listed investment companies. So really meaningful to meet the objectives that the government is seeking to do on, in um, energy transition and certainly lots of companies investing in, in the likes of biotech assets and supporting that, which has been a key goal. So it's really doing the job of highlighting to the people on high that this is a strategically important sector of the UK investment, providing capital to really important areas. But I'd say it, it hasn't really been a case of people deliberately trying to be nasty to investment companies. I'd say it's more the benign neglect or unintended consequences that um, cost legislation that is generally intended to stop one person sitting behind a Bloomberg terminal charging extremely high fees for essentially tracking an index. It's designed to stop that sort of situation and hasn't really come across particularly well to vehicles that invest in, provide primary capital to innovative biotech companies or 
renewable energy projects or many of the infrastructure projects that we'll um, always struggle to to fund and build. Well, you mentioned renewable energy infrastructure and, and the role that investment companies play in financing that. And the renewable sector has performed much better in the last couple of weeks. It has responded to the changed interest rate environment. There also, we heard today that the government is changing the terms on which it is issuing new licenses for offshore wind following the last auction, which basically failed to attract any interest at all. The guaranteed price that was offered was too low to attract any interest. That got a lot of publicity. Do you think that uh, this new regime, which obviously gives a much higher price potentially to developers of offshore wind, will also be a helpful factor for the renewable sector, and particularly those who are involved in, uh, in wind power, like Greencoat UK Wind and one or two others uh, that are involved in that sector? I'm only aware of those high-level details, but in general, the importance of being paid an appropriate return, and I think in those asset classes you've seen costs materially increase. Uh, you've seen a number of projects in different countries being pulled on that basis, and you need to design structures and reimbursements that properly reward the investor for the, the risk they're taking in developing these assets, which is a slightly different ballgame in a, in a higher rate environment and a higher cost environment. So um, yeah, getting that right is never easy, but having that appropriate regimes and, and clarity of structure so people can make long-term investment decisions that, that hopefully in the long term will benefit us all in terms of a uh, cleaner and hopefully attractively priced energy is something that we'd all hope for. And in the meantime, over the last few weeks, we've hearing a number of announcements by companies in the renewable uh, energy infrastructure space about what they're planning to do. And capital allocation has become a big topic. In other words, what do you do if you're a renewable energy trust trading at a big discount and you can't raise any more money for new projects or indeed projects which you may have committed to? You have a number of choices. You can repay debt, you can do share buybacks, or you can sell some of the assets you have. We heard this week from Foresight Solar, for example, they've started a program of divesting, but they're also doing buybacks and reducing debt. So what's your impression overall of the sector? Do you think what the companies are doing is right and necessary? Should they be doing more in terms of clarifying their capital allocation priorities? Yeah, we've seen a big sea change in in attitudes to capital allocation across the investment company sector, really, uh, particularly the alternative space, renewables being one private equity as well. We've seen developments there where investors, well, one, you've had a, a derating of shares in several asset classes. So moving from premiums to discounts and investors, you know, not happy with what that's done to the valuation of their portfolios and putting pressure on boards to do what they can about it. And appropriately using the incremental pound is really what investors are, are highly focused on. And if you can buy back your own shares with excess cash and be left with well, left with the same assets that are generating the same return on a lowest share capital, then that's quite an attractive option, particularly when shares are trading at meaningful discounts. You get an uplift to NAV on that and, and potentially your earnings potential as well. And so I think that's been a good development. I suppose key to highlight that managing the balance sheet is also essential. The last thing you want is funds that become forced sellers of assets to manage their balance sheet. And that's where you get value destruction We've seen it historically in the property and uh, private equity space, but in general, sort of balance sheets are in somewhat better shape and the renewables are highly cash generative. And so using that excess cash flow potentially to return to investors, if you're comfortable with your balance sheet, your commitments, uh, commitments level of debt, 
and ability to repay that, then I think that's very important. And the potential for asset sales is hugely important at this time when people are, are somewhat uncertain. Proving your valuations is really key. And, and we've seen that across renewables, across private equity, where a lot of skepticism, but uh, realizations continue to come through at significant uplist to valuation. And the more transactions you get in these various asset classes that support the valuations, then the easier it is to be comfortable and the harder it is to justify the wide discounts and, and see them continuing. And by the same token, it's going to be one of the uh, criteria against which the trust's ability to move their discounts uh, will be judged, if you like. So those who have got balance sheets that are in not such good shape or have mismanaged them somewhat are going to remain penalised, presumably, while those which are in much better shape will see their discounts continue to narrow, you would hope. Yeah, I think those with sensible capital structures and high-quality assets uh, are always going to do well and have a bit more flexibility to potentially return some capital. And I don't look at a buyback as a way of marching in a discount. I look at it as, as demonstrating that sensible capital allocation, really showing investors that you do care about the share price and that boards haven't forgotten about their investors in the difficult times and potentially providing a bit of liquidity to investors. And it's good to have that visibility of liquidity and, and potentially that's positive for the trading spreads and the like. You've also been uh, obviously quite prominent over the last couple of years in talking about the need for consolidation in the investment trust sector. And this week, we've heard another example, which is two JP Morgan managed trusts, uh, JP Morgan Smaller and JP Morgan Midcap, which have both announced that they are considering a merger. That's not a particular surprise in one sense, I think, because essentially they're managed by the same teams effectively. What did you make of that particular announcement? You weren't surprised, presumably, to hear that come around, or were you? Well, a bit of yes and no, I'd, I'd say, Jonathan. It's an interesting one because I suppose JP Morgan also run JP Morgan Midcap, the UK Midcap Fund, and the somewhat cryptically named Mercantile, which is also a UK Midcap Fund, effectively, but under different management teams. And, and probably the industry has been calling for years that surely you should just put those two together. And that hasn't happened. And I suppose it probably hasn't happened because you look at sometimes the interests of, of all the party involved and perhaps the management group having one big mid-cap fund and one small mid-cap fund and ending up with one big mid-cap fund doesn't really make a huge difference to them. But um, what they're doing here and what ultimately the boards are deciding to do here is that you get a small to reasonably sized JP Morgan mid-cap and, and similarly sized JP Morgan US smallers you put them together and follow the small cap mandate and you end up with a meaningfully sized fund that it's probably becomes a much more attractive proposition for the likes of wealth managers and institutional investors that it has the size and trading liquidity that they might invest in compared to being a, a relatively small player in that small cap space. And you'll also get the benefit of decreased costs and the fixed costs being shared across a, a wider asset base. So I think it's a sensible move and makes a lot of sense. And, and clearly the board did consider other options, other fund management groups and the like. But I think this provides a pretty executable transaction that leaves a small cap fund in probably a much better place than it would have been uh, otherwise. So it looks like a sensible deal, although actually probably not the one the industry have been calling for for years. <laughs> okay. I should reiterate that while uh, JP Morgan sponsor this podcast, I'm very grateful to them for that. They don't have any say in what we say about their trusts. If I look at the performance of the shares since they announced this, 
Does that suggest to you that the market's going to be happy with this in the end, despite perhaps having earlier wanted a different outcome? Yeah, certainly. I'm certainly saying what they've delivered, I think, is a good solution. Somewhat more insightful than us simple brokers who um, were thinking about something else. But the share price since it's happened, I think mid caps up around 7% or so, has been strong. Although it's quite difficult to unlock that from the wider trends we were seeing about the small cap sector being some of its peers have also been equally as strong over a similar period. Let's move on then and talk about some other issues that have come up. We've seen some more proposed consolidation in the property sector. Without getting into the details of that one, we've seen this proposed tie-up between Picton Property Income and UK Commercial Property, ticker UKCM and PCTN, the two tickers there. I thought the interesting one about this particular merger was the fact that they have opted to keep Picton, if this goes ahead, as the continued listing vehicle, and they're going to switch to a self-managed mandate. Now, why do you think that would do? Is that something to do with this cost disclosure issue that we've been talking about? Or is there a general advantage from being self-managed rather than having an independent board and a separate management company contracted to look after the assets? Yeah, we we have seen several companies adopt the self-managed and, and become listed under the property operating company chapter of the London market. And in doing that, you effectively fall out of the cost reporting that we were talking about earlier. And several funds have favoured that which should be positive for demand and perhaps looked at by a a slightly different investor set who um, look at internally managed REITs rather than who might be less focused on the traditional investment company structure. There's obviously an issue around continuation votes at the moment because trusts are trading at big discounts. A number of trusts have mechanisms by which if their discount remains wider than a certain level, they have to have a, a continuation vote or at least a tender or some sort of reaction to that. One of the companies in the spotlight over that is European Opportunities Trust, managed by Alex Darwell for Devon Equity Management. used to be run by Jupiter, but for the last few years has been managed by Devon Equity Management, which is an independent fund management company. There's been a bit of to and fro between the shareholders and the board on this one. European Opportunities Trust proposed a tender offer, and then the activist shareholder in its register, Saba Capital, we mentioned this last week, came back and said, no, you should be offering more. That was put to a vote this week, and the board and management are kind of one for now, at least. What did you make of this particular situation? Yeah, it's an interesting battle, and yeah, European opportunities, as you said, managed for a very long time by Alexander Darwell, who has a tremendous long-term track record, but performance has been pretty disappointing over three and five years now, particularly given the manager had a very large position in Wirecard, which was a strong driver of returns for many years, but then subsequently turned out to be a fraud. And so that definitely impacted performance and and certainly impacted sentiment towards the stock. And and I think many of the holders over recent years, the more wealth management holders have, have reduced on the register. And you've got a number of value players who have come in. And one in particular, Saba Capital, who's a US-based hedge fund that, that's appearing to be a lot more aggressive than the value-orientated investors that we've seen in, in our sector in the past. And it was calling for um, either a full exit at NAV or, or certainly a, a more meaningful tender than the 25% that was recently offered by the board. So the board initially was putting in place a tender in the future if the fund underperforms. But under pressure from the investors said if it passes this continuation vote, we'll offer a 25% exit at a 2% discount, less costs. Ultimately, the board won, but there was a meaningful voting against around 35% of votes cast, I think. So 
a meaningful portion of the register voting against the board. And that means that the fund isn't necessarily out the woods. I think they're quite possibly facing more pressure as time goes on. And it'll be interesting to see what happens at the tender, whether Saba look to reduce their stake or if they don't tender, their stake would increase and, and potentially they've then got a greater percent of share capital and can be even noisier. Finally, Ewan, I wanted to ask you about a couple of other big names that have been in the news recently for different reasons. Number one is Capital Gearing Trust, very popular defensive, if you like, investment trust. They seem to have got themselves into a little bit of a pickle about their ability to buy back shares. Do you have any thoughts on that one? Is that going to keep the share price of this one under pressure for a little while? They have been trading at an unusual discount, despite having a zero discount policy. What do you make of that one? So that's been a, a key feature of the fund is it's operating a zero discount policy with effectively issuing shares at around a 2% premium when there's demand and, and buying back at around 2% discount when there's a seller so that the share price pretty closely tracks the NAV performance. That's been very successful over a number of years, but there seems to be a bit of a yeah, error, it appears, on the part of the administrator because to do that you need both shareholder permission and you need the appropriate level of accounting reserves that are deemed distributable. And you can do various things to you know, apply to the courts to shift some of your reserves that are classified as not distributable and make them distributable. Ultimately, this fund has a pretty liquid portfolio. And so its ability to access cash from its portfolio from selling it is not a problem, but it's not able to distribute more on an accounting basis. And yeah, it seems that that's been delayed in the court process and you'd hope they would have been well on top of this. So a, a bit of an issue and that has seen the discount widen to, I think it's around 4% currently, so wider than it would typically be. And hopefully they can get that sorted in a number of months and a normal service can return. But yeah, there's potential for it to continue to be on a bit of a discount while that happens. But I'd be pretty sure, and the board have stated, that they, in the long term, remain very committed to this strategy. So you'd expect that to narrow in the medium term. More recently, Capital Gearing had their interims out and had uh, Investor Day as well. So still very much in their defensive mindset with index-linked gilts being something that they're very attracted to. But we did have a bit of a talk from Peter Spiller, which was headed Reasons for Optimism, which isn't something you typically hear from Peter. But he was actually highlighting some of the risk assets, particularly areas of the listed investment company space, renewable energy and infrastructure funds, where he thinks that there's attractive real returns to be made over the medium term and those valuations are attractive. I wanted to ask you about a couple of larger companies in the hedge fund space, particularly Pershing Square Holdings and Third Point Investors, managed by Dan Loeb. I should mention that your company is a broker to the latter, to Third Point. They both had something to say this week. Tell us what you made of their announcements. So two funds have traded on reasonably wide discounts for a while. I think Pershing Square is on around a 36% discount managed by Bill Ackman, pretty famous US hedge fund manager. And that's announced a further 250 million US dollar buyback, which is equivalent to about three and a half percent of market cap. So reasonably meaningful in absolute terms, although not huge in the context of the fund. But I think that's useful to have that there and a potential limiting the downside of, of the discount and a manager that's been incredibly successful, particularly in the, the hedging activity he's taken. He's got a US focused, long quality equity portfolio, um, quite concentrated 
But then he's been very successful at, say, calling the increase in US interest rates and has benefited investors greatly by putting on asymmetric trades with some options or swaptions, I believe they were, to benefit from that. He's now closed that out. But that's generated a lot of return and, and cash flow for the, the fund that it can then invest at attractive valuations in its equity portfolio. And the third point, yes, it's got a number of measures and, and continues to actively buy back shares and has a upcoming tender offer that will be triggered if the discount remains wide, which it looks like it will be wider than that trigger. And therefore, shareholders will have an opportunity to uh, exit at a relatively tight discount for a portion of their holding. So that fund's put a number of measures in over the years. It has come under some pressure from more activist investors. And yeah, that has resulted in a number of measures the manager, as his quarterly letter was out as well, and, and highlighting that whilst it almost it's got high quality US equities, it's it's renowned for its event driven equity type positions, but also currently seeing attractive opportunities in credit, uh, including areas of structured credit. So um, a bit of a sort of multi asset type portfolio that you've got in that these days. All right. So on that note, that was Ewan Levitan, head of research at Deutsche Nubis Securities. Thank you for listening. The Moneymakers Weekly Investment Trust podcast is independently produced and edited and is listed on all leading podcast channels. You can also sign up at the website money-makers.co to be notified every time a new podcast is available. Please note these podcasts are provided for educational purposes only and nothing you have heard from any of the speakers should be regarded as constituting investment advice. If you want more news, analysis, interviews and other investment trust content, don't forget to look at the Moneymakers Circle, available now for a modest subscription at the website.